lift my eyes up to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hey, great to see all of you here today. Uh, my name's Scott, and I have the privilege of being part of what we might call our interim preaching team here at South as we're uh, in the process of looking for a new pastor. Uh, we have a lot of talented people here at South, obviously, as you could just tell by our worship team. I think we should give them an incredible hand, yeah. Uh, that video was done by one of our students, Zach uh, Weigert, and uh, once again, illustrating the gifts that God gives to many, many people here. Uh, we're going to do a short series on some psalms the next uh, three weeks, and this is going to kind of build a pathway toward our time as we prepare ourselves for Advent. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the very first of the psalms, Psalm 1. So if you brought a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you didn't, we're going to walk through it verse by verse, and I'll have those up on the screen. Uh, before we look at the Word of God, I'm going to encourage us to bow once again briefly in prayer. Father, thanks so much for the privilege we have to worship you and to gather together. Lord, today we just want to uh, surrender our lives to you. Lord, you are a gracious and kind and compassionate God who loves us and is calling us into a deeper walk with you. I pray now as we look into your Word that you would use this time and this text to encourage us and teach us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as many of you here know, the largest city in the United States is New York City, and it has approximately 8.5 million people. Uh, but what you may not know is that there are also approximately 10 million cats and 12 million dogs who live in the city of New York. Now, when your pet dies in the city because it's all concrete, you can't just go out and bury your pet in the backyard. And so a few years back, the city authorities of New York set up a system whereby when your pet passed, you would call them, and they would send someone by, and for a fee of about $75, they would take the carcass of your pet, and they would dispose of it. Well, somewhere along the way, an enterprising woman came up with a great idea. Uh, she decided that she could do this service for much cheaper, and so she placed an ad saying that when your pet passed, I'll come by and take care of it for $35. So what she would do is she'd go to the local Salvation Army, and she would buy a suitcase for $2. And then she would go to your house or your apartment, and she would pick up your dead pet, she'd put it in the suitcase, and then she'd get on the subway. Now, if you've ever been on the subway in New York City, you know it's really, really crowded, and theft is a huge problem. <laughs> so she would set the suitcase down, look away, and then when someone would take the suitcase, she'd go, wait, stop, thief. <laughs> well, the authorities eventually caught onto her scheme but what do you charge her with? <laughs> and then what about those people who stole those suitcases? 
what did they get when they got to where they ended up? You know, I'd like to suggest that the thieves who stole those suitcases function as something of a metaphor for a lot of people in our society. They've grabbed onto something that they think is going to provide them with happiness and significance and fulfillment, only to find out that's not so. I mean, we know this. We live in the greatest civilization the world has ever seen. It's known the world round for its technology, its affluence, its mobility. Yet I'm not sure that a majority of our citizens today would say that they're fulfilled or satisfied with life. Now, I know that there are some people who say, well, the world is broken, it's fallen, it's a place of, place of pain and misery, and therefore we can't find fulfillment or satisfaction. But Scripture seems to indicate otherwise. Scripture never denies that the world we live in is fallen and that we're broken people. But it does seem to indicate that it is possible to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction. But that takes focus, dedication, perseverance over the long haul of life. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us in Psalm 1. Look at the first phrase of this psalm. It says, blessed is the one. Well, uh, literally the word blessed means to be happy. In the original text, it's ashray. But it doesn't mean happy in the way that most Americans would define it. Now, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think we know this, that in our culture, we think of happiness in terms of bigger houses and nicer cars and more exclusive vacations, comfortable retirements, excellent health with a minimum of pain and problems. But Ashri is different than that. It doesn't mean having a problem-filled life or getting to do whatever we want with no hassles or no headaches or no heartbreaks. Ashri literally means to be satisfied, to be whole, to be complete, to be blessed. I think we could most accurately describe it as having a sense of success, a feeling of fulfillment. I think all of us in this room today have felt that way at certain points in our lives. Uh, you probably felt that way after you worked really, really, really hard and you finished your degree in college or in grad school. Uh, maybe you felt that way after you finished a long-term project at work and it, it came off really, really well. Uh, maybe you felt that way after you did a long-term remodel of your home and it turned out exactly how you wanted. Uh, Melanie and I have some friends and a couple of years back, uh, they successfully launched their oldest son off to college. Uh, they felt success. They felt fulfillment. So after they dropped him off, they went to a restaurant, and then they posted this picture on Facebook. And they titled it, Heartbroken. Well, that's the blessedness, friends, that the psalmist is describing here in Psalm 1, feeling complete and satisfied and fulfilled. And men and women are intrinsically wired to seek that out. And the psalmist affirms that search. 
He says that it's possible to find, but we have to do two things. The first of which he tells us in the rest of verse 1. Look what he says here. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, First of all, the psalmist tells us that what we need to do is boundary the bad. We need to put up some guardrails in our lives against the wrong kinds of influence. I mean, most of us when we were growing up, our parents wisely told us, make sure that you choose your friends wisely because your friends are going to have a lot of influence on you, so choose your friends well. Well, what the psalmist is doing here is pretty much the same thing. He's instructing us to be really, really careful with who and what we let into our hearts and our minds and our lives. And to reinforce that, what he does is he describes this downward progression of bad influences. It starts with the counsel of the wicked, and then it moves to the path of sinners, and then it ends up in the seat of mockers. Let me translate this for us and put it in the vernacular. It begins with the undue influence of ungodly information, which over time, if we allow that into our lives, leads to a a series of immoral choices which ultimately leads to the stubborn habits of opposing God and rejecting everything that his kingdom represents. Now, I think sometimes in church world it's tempting for those of us here to think, well, this downward progression only describes really nasty people like drug lords or dictators or gang members. But the psalmist is using these phrases, friends, to refer to ideas and people and practices that reject God and oppose his truth. Uh, Collectively, I like to describe this and put it under the label of what I call practical atheism. It's the belief and the philosophy that life can be interpreted and then lived out without any reference to God without any submission to the way that he's created reality. In other words, God never is, and he's just not part of the picture. Now, we all know here that uh, one of the most powerful forces in our lives, in our culture today, is the media. I mean, it reaches all the way from Hollywood and New York to network TV to all the information we download on our phones. Now, there are exceptions to this, so I don't want to overstate it. There are exceptions. But generally speaking, friends, in our culture, the media never lets God into the room. Uh, One of the TV shows I really, really like is Elementary. And it's basically a TV show about these detectives who saw murders. And I like Sherlock, and I like Joan, and I like Captain Gregson, and I like Marcus. I like the characters. But God is never, ever a part of their worldview. He's never, ever a part of their life. God simply is never in the room. And while I like the show, I have to be careful to think that through. And what's probably closest to reality in that show is that no one on that show ever smiles very much. They don't seem to be very joyful or fulfilled. Maybe only for a brief moment when they catch a bad guy. Now, I know that there are some folks who would argue, well, what we need to do is we need to just withdraw from the culture in order to avoid that kind of thinking and that kind of influence. But friends, the psalmist doesn't say that we can structure our lives where we can never encounter those kinds of ideas or those kinds of influences or those kinds of people. 
Uh, that wasn't possible in ancient Israel. It wasn't possible in the early church. It's certainly not possible in 21st century America. What the psalmist is telling you and me is if we want fulfillment, we want success, we want satisfaction in life, the first thing we have to do is boundary the bad. The second thing, though, and this is even more important, he goes on and he says, what we need to do is grab the good. Look what he says here. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law. They meditate day and night. Now, the word that's used here in this context for law originally meant all of the Old Testament scripture from Genesis up through Malachi, but from the perspective of the New Testament, we would need to interpret it as all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The psalmist is telling you and me that the blessed person, the person who, who finds success, the person who gets fulfillment in life is someone who takes this book. They love this book. They read this book. They study and meditate on this book. In other words, the psalmist is saying that for the blessed person, God's word and the study of God's word and thinking about God's word is the foundation of their lives. As the Apostle Paul wrote to his young disciple Timothy in the last letter he ever wrote him, he said, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in right living so that the man or the woman of God can be adequately equipped for every good work. G.K. Chesterton was one of the most articulate and thoughtful Christians of the first half of the 20th century. And on one occasion, somebody asked him, uh, Mr. Chesterton, if you were marooned on a desert island and could only have one book with you, what would you choose? Well, being a well-known, articulate, thoughtful Christian, everybody assumed that Chesterton would say the Bible, but he didn't. Chesterton said that if he were marooned on a desert island, the one book he would want is Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. <laughs> well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if we're trapped on an island, we want a book that's going to help us get off the island. We don't want to be entertained or informed. We want a book that's going to show us how to be saved. Friends, listen, we all know this. We have a fallen nature and we live in a fallen world. And so we need a book that's going to point us to the Savior, Jesus, because he's the one who saves us. And we need a book that then tells us, here's how you want to live if you want fulfillment, if you want satisfaction, if you want some success in life. And that book's the Bible. And so if we delight in it and we study it and we meditate on it, over time, over time, over time, it will change us because it does point us regularly to our Savior and it shows us how to live in a way that leads to satisfaction. If you don't mind, what I'd like to do is make a couple of suggestions for us as we study the Scripture. These are just suggestions. If they're not helpful to you, 
fine. Blow them off. But here's what I'd like to suggest to us. That when reading the scripture, first of all, do so at your best time. Some of us in here are morning people. Some of us in here are evening people. Some of us in here get our mojo from noon to one, whatever it might be. Friends, I want to suggest that find your best time of the day and take a little bit of time to read the scripture during your best time. I'm a morning person. I need to read the Bible in the morning. If I try to read the Bible at night, I guarantee you I'm going to fall asleep. That's just not a good time for me. Find your best time. But then secondly, I'd like to suggest that as we read the scripture, we go slower and we go deeper. Now, there are people who say, well, what I want you to do is read the whole Bible in the course of a year. And sometimes for some people in some ways that works. You might be one of those smarty pants people. You can read the whole Bible in a year and it's going to help you. Most of us, though, I would like to suggest are much better served by going slower and deeper. I like the way Madame Guyon, who was a 17th, 18th century Christian, put it. She said, if you read quickly, it will benefit you little. You'll be like a bee that merely skims the surface of a flower. Instead, in this new way of reading with prayer, you must become as the bee who penetrates into the depths of the flower. You plunge deeply within to remove its deepest nectar. Friends, let's pause here for just a moment and let's review. In these first two verses of Psalm 1, the psalmist has argued that if we want to find fulfillment in life, what we need to do is boundary the bad and then grab the good. He's saying we need to guard against the influence of practical atheism and then build our lives on the Bible. And yet, in all honesty, that approach strikes us, at least it does sometimes, as naive at best and untrue at worst. I mean, let's be honest. We look around the culture today and we see sports stars and movie celebrities and hedge fund managers and politicians, and they could give a rip about God. They mock Jesus. And yet they're prospering like crazy. And yet, on the other hand, there are thousands and thousands of Christians around the world today who are suffering pain and persecution. In fact, in your life right now, you might have a neighbor or a coworker or somebody you sit next to in school, and they don't want anything to do with God. And yet, by all outward appearances, they, they seem to be really happy, really healthy, maybe even wealthy. And so sometimes, sometimes, while we don't voice this in church world, deep down we wonder if the psalmist was deluded or if he was living in some kind of a spiritual bubble. Now, the reality is, is sometimes, sometimes God's people do really suffer and the ungodly do prosper. You've seen that and so have I. But over the long haul of life, those results almost always get reversed. And that's why the psalmist tells us to build our lives on the word of God. Look what he says in verse 3. That person, the person who builds their life on scripture, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, 
which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Well, the psalmist is using an agricultural metaphor here, and given his, his culture, that makes perfect sense. He says that the person, the man or woman, who builds their life on the scripture, they're exactly like a tree that is planted next to a stream of water where it gets nurtured and it gets refreshed and it can grow. Now, he lived out in the Judean desert, and it was completely dry there, so any kind of a stream of water was viewed as a source of life. Any of those of us who live here in Denver realize this is a high desert as well, and so we love water. You need water to nourish trees. And sticking with the metaphor here, you know trees always require lots of water, and even with lots of water, it takes time time for them to grow. And let's remember that fruit trees, whether it's an orange tree or a peach tree or an apple tree, they only bear fruit in their season. Friends, the psalmist uses this picture to let us know that we will have a positive impact on our families and our friends and our communities. We will find fulfillment and success and satisfaction but that always, always, always takes time. See, I think that there's another reason we tend to dismiss this kind of teaching when it comes to the scripture is because we all live in a society where we have tons of technology and everything happens now. I mean, years ago when I was in grad school, I worked part-time for Domino's Pizza and that was when they promised 30-minute delivery. Yeah, they even had an ad campaign that says, we sell delivery, not pizza. And if you've ever eaten a Domino's pizza, you know that's true. <laughs> well, that was a long time ago. Our society is so much more fast-paced now than it was then. I mean, think, think about it for a second. You order something from Amazon, and it's here in one day. You go to Starbucks, and it's up for you in one minute. You Google something, and it's now. It's now. So from the perspective of American culture, it's hard for us to wait and see the Lord bring fruit into our lives. But my experience and my observation over the years now tells me that the psalmist is right. But it always takes time. One of the wisest, most productive people I've ever met in my life is a woman who is now in her late 80s, and she's in a senior care center. And she came from a really, really hard background. Never knew her mother who died when she was a little girl. She was raised by her dad and her uncle in poverty. She eventually kind of climbed her way out and got her undergraduate degree and then eventually got a couple of graduate degrees and eventually went into ministry and counseling. She's one of the wisest people I've ever met. And one time I sat down with her and I said, how did you get to be so wise? And she said, well, I've been studying two things for 40 years. I've been studying people and I've been studying the scripture. And when you study people and you study the scripture over that long period of time, you learn some things. Uh, one of my mentors was 
a man who was raised in poverty, and his mom died when he was young as well, and eventually he tried to navigate life, and uh, it was challenging, but he eventually became known as a very, very great Bible scholar and preacher. And yet along the way, at one point, he had horrible charges against his character. It's very wounding to him. But before he died just a couple of years ago, he had literally blessed thousands and thousands and thousands of people through his ministry of teaching the scriptures. See, men and women like that are illustrations of what the psalmist is describing here. Uh, these kinds of people, their leaf doesn't wither. That doesn't mean that circumstances don't affect them. They do. Just like moving from summer to fall to winter affects the leaves on a tree. Those leaves will fall off. But in the spring, they always come back. Because those kinds of men and women have built their lives on the word of God. And they've put up some guardrails against bad influences. And so they always come back in the spring. There's a sense of stability and satisfaction. A sense of peace in their life because they know that the Lord is with them. And the psalmist goes on and says, and whatever they do prospers. He's not saying that if you read the Bible or you build your life on the Bible, you're going to get rich. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, is if we study the scripture and we think about the scripture and we meditate on the scripture and by the grace of Jesus, we try to practice the scripture in time, we will become the men and women that he has called us to be. Men and women who are filled with satisfaction, fulfilled with the life that God has called us to. A while back, I heard this great story about this guy and he was on a cross-country trip and he stopped in the middle of Kansas to stay with his friends overnight. And his friends were farmers, lived out on this farm. And at dinner, they were having a conversation. And the husband and wife team of farmers were talking about their two sons. And their two sons were both in the United States Navy. One was stationed on an aircraft carrier in the Persian Gulf. And the other was stationed on an intelligence-gathering destroyer in the South China Sea. And they said both of their sons loved being in the Navy and were really happy in the Navy and finding a lot of fulfillment. And the man who was visiting said, how is it possible that you raised two sons out here in the middle of Kansas on a farm and they both ended up as sailors? And the, the two parents looked at each other and kind of laughed and said, well, we've been asking ourselves that for a long, long time. Well, dinner ended up and they went to bed. And the next morning at breakfast, they were sitting at breakfast and the visitor said to his farmer friends, you know, last night I asked you, how is it possible that you raised two sons out here on a farm, but now they're both sailors? I think I might have an answer for you. And he took them up to the room that he had stayed in the night before. It was the boys' room. And the parents had pretty much left it untouched since the boys left. And you walk into the room, and on the wall in front of the bed was this huge poster of an aircraft carrier battle group out at sea. And then you went into the bathroom, and there was a poster from the movie Top Gun. And there was one of those F-14s flying off the deck of that carrier. You see, the thing those boys saw every morning and every night, the first thing when they got up and the last thing when they went to bed, were those posters. See, if you think about ships at sea, and you meditate about ships at sea, 
And every day there are ships at sea in your mind, in your life, in your heart. Maybe, maybe, maybe over time you might become a sailor. If you think about the scripture and you meditate on the scripture, and by the grace of God you try to live out the teachings of the scripture over a long period of time, you might become a saint. But that's not true of those who go the other direction. Over the long haul, those who live a life of practical atheism end up in a bad place. Look what the psalmist says here. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Now, once again, the psalmist draws a picture from the agricultural setting that he lived in. Uh, this is a reference to a threshing floor in a barn at harvest time. In ancient Israel, the sheaves of grain were brought into the barn and they were put on the floor and then there was this huge wooden sled. It was like a huge, huge rolling pin. And what the workers would do is, after they had put all the sheaves of grain on the floor, they'd run the sled back and forth across the sheaves of grain. And what they were trying to do was break the grain from the sheaves. And after they did that a number of times, then they would put the, put the rolling pin, the sledge aside, and they'd come in with pitchforks, and they'd throw everything up in the air. And as they threw all those sheaves up in the air, the grain would fall, and the sheaves had become like dust that the wind blew away. And the psalmist wants you and me to know that people who leave God out of the equation, who live lives of practical atheism, are going to become exactly like that. They were created to serve God and love him and help others, but they decided to serve themselves. And so over time, as life draws to a close, it becomes apparent that what they've done and what they've accomplished is nothing more than a colossal waste of time and talent and treasure. As the rock group Kansas said years ago, they're just dust in the wind. Friends, listen, listen, listen. You don't have to be a drug addict or a bum on Skid Row or a member of a drug cartel to waste your life. I mean, some of you have seen this just like I have. We've seen people, we've known people who were decent folks. They had careers, they raised family, they paid their bills, but God was never ever part of the equation. And so when retirement came, they played golf and they played bridge and they played shuffleboard and they started to think, is this really what this whole thing was about? And the answer is no. Because someday judgment will come. And all of us are going to be evaluated on whether or not we knew Jesus and what we did with what he entrusted us with, whether it's large or whether it's small. See, those who live lives of practical atheism are going to see their lives as chaff. And that's why they won't, as the psalmist says here, stand in the judgment or in the assembly of the righteous, those who have been made righteous by Christ. But those who have professed faith in Jesus, trusted in his grace, and then built their lives on the Bible, they're part of that enormous crowd of righteous men, women, and children 
who are happy and satisfied and fulfilled. And they're visualized for us in the book of Revelation. And they'll be filled with joy and wonder and satisfaction for all eternity. See, if you want fulfillment now, and you want heaven then, you need to trust your life to the incarnate word of God who is Jesus, and then build your life on the written word of God, which is the Bible. Now, neither Jesus nor the rest of Scripture ever promised that we're going to have an easy path. They both tell us, though, that our Heavenly Father will provide His providential protection as we walk through life and try to live by the Scripture. Look what the psalmist says here in verse 6. For the Lord, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Well, the psalmist is simply driving home the point that he's been making through the entire psalm. There are two roads in life, two paths which people take, which over time lead them to two entirely different destinations. One road is built on the moral and spiritual independence of people who foolishly think they can leave God out of the equation. They think they're their master of their own fate, the captain of their own ship, the shaper of their own destiny. But that's a dead-end road that leads to destruction. Jesus said the same thing. But the other road is the one that's built on the love of Christ. He's the one who makes us righteous. And it's built on trying to live by his grace according to the truth of his word. And what the psalmist says is, if we do that, the Lord in his mercy will watch over us who choose that path. He will give us fulfillment. And over time, he will change us into the people that he's called us to be. You know, friends, I don't know where you're at today in terms of a personal relationship with Christ. I don't know where you're at in terms of your own personal commitment to building your life on his word. But I do know it's never, ever too late to move those directions. I mean, today might be the day, might be the day that you give your heart to Jesus and you submit to Jesus and you do what we sang earlier, you surrender everything to Jesus. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you've known the Lord a long time and today the Holy Spirit is whispering to you. your life on my word study my word commit yourself to becoming a meditator on my word and friends if we do that over time over time Christ will be at work in our lives and we will be blessed we'll be blessed Christian author and speaker Tony Campolo told about a friend of his who pastored a church, small church, in downtown New York City back in the 1980s. And that was when the AIDS crisis had broken out. And one day, two young gay men showed up at the pastor's office 
And they asked him if he would lead a memorial service for a friend of theirs who had just died of AIDS. The pastor said, of course he would, and so they planned the service. And they wanted it held at the gravesite, and it was just going to have a couple of songs, and they wanted the pastor to do a short homily, and then they wanted him to pray a prayer. And so when the day came, there were about 25 gay men there and some family members. And after the service was over, everybody was crying. The pastor wasn't sure to do, so he just said, is there anything else I can do to help you? And one of the guys in the crowd said, well, when I was growing up in church, they always read Psalm 23, and you didn't read Psalm 23. Would you read Psalm 23? So the pastor read Psalm 23. And after that, another man said, I know that somewhere in the Bible, it talks about there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Would you read that? And so the pastor turned and read that beautiful, beautiful passage, Romans 8, 28 to 39. And so for the next half hour, he just read scripture after scripture. Well, a couple of days later, those two young guys showed up at the pastor's office again, and they told him, they said, we really don't know anything about Jesus, and we don't know anything about the Bible. Will you meet with us? He said, I'd love to. And so they started a little Bible study. And eventually in time, those two young men gave their lives to Christ, and they started to build their lives on Christ. And over time, over time, over time, their lives started to align themselves with the Scripture. Friends, if you want fulfillment now and you want heaven then, you need to do the exact same thing that those two men did. We need to give our lives to Jesus. And then we need to make a full heartfelt commitment to building our lives on his word. We've looked at the word of God. Now we're going to participate in the table of God. Let me pray for us as we prepare ourselves to do that. Holy Spirit, you know where we're all at today. May you reach deep, deep, deep down into our hearts and our lives. Draw us close to you because you love us so much. Help us to understand and know and experience that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.